Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. It scares the hell out of me. And the rate of improvement is exponential. If humanity collectively decides that creating digital superintelligence is the right move, we should do so very, very carefully. Mr. Musk expressing his concerns about artificial intelligence, saying it scares the hell out of me. So are there grave dangers posed by uh, too quickly developing artificial intelligence? Could it lead to the end of the human race? There was a letter sent out by... Um, very credible and uh, well-known scientific and political individuals. And uh, part of that letter included this line, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. And one of the signatories of that letter is our guest, Professor Joshua Bengio, founder and scientific director of the Mila Quebec AI Institute, uh, the professor's research helped to create the groundwork for our AI technology today. And the question then becomes, when AI surpasses our human intelligence, and it will, might AI wipe out humanity? Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Pleasure. Might it, might it wipe out humanity? It might. And that, that scares me, too. When did you and your other pioneers of artificial intelligence technology first become alarmed? Well, actually, um, there's a, a very small uh, subset of AI researchers that have been worrying about this for a long time, at least uh, intensely in the last decade. Um, for my part, and, and Jeff Hinton, about the same time in the last few months, and then kind of independently, uh, we've been thinking more about this because of the acceleration of capabilities of AI systems that we've seen with ChatGPT, GPT-4. And, um, and I think in the past, maybe I, you know, I didn't pay too much attention to this because it's hard psychologically to think that what you're working on could be very dangerous. But but I've been thinking very much about all this. I, I wrote a bunch of blog posts. Uh, I just put up a new one now. and um, And I don't... I don't think we have sufficiently reassuring answers right now. Where do we find your blog post? Yashwabenju.org. Okay. Um, how advanced is AI now? It almost seems like the concern snuck up on us. Uh, what's it capable of affecting? What might it negatively be used for at this particular time, like elections perhaps, such as the next U.S. presidential election, which happens next year, or the expected 2025 Canadian federal election, does it have the potential to do that, and how might it affect elections? Um, this is something I and many others are worried about. Um, it looks like we have AI systems that can convince us, that can dialogue um, and pass for humans. How much technically is needed to make that really dangerous? Really, nobody knows. I'm sure there are some people working on it. And because the stakes, democracy, are high here, uh, I, I definitely think we should uh, hurry up in regulation that would, for example, ban impersonating humans, that would force uh, displaying whether you are interacting with a machine 
or human, like if the content you're seeing is is genuine or or you know machine generated, um, making sure that social media accounts and other like internet accounts are associated with a real person. These these are things that uh, would help for sure. So AI could uh, very easily, and I'm I'm fairly worldly person. I understand what's going on in the world, but uh, AI could do a, a really good job of convincing me that it has a legitimate message and is a legitimate entity if it's online and I'm looking for something. Let's say I'm looking for something for the uh, U.S. election that I want to cover or something I want to cover for our Canadian election in 2025. It can do a really good job of persuading me that it is a true human entity and that it's legitimate, yes? It has that capacity now. Professor? You'd have to know that when we're talking about artificial intelligence, something would go wrong. And it went wrong with Zoom, so now we have Professor Bengio on the, uh, on the phone with us. Professor Joshua Bengio, founder and scientific director of the Mila Quebec AI Institute, joshuabengio.org, is where you can read the professor's um, podcast, or at least hear, read his blog. Professor, this is all really fascinating, and simultaneously, it's very concerning. Just before we lost you on uh, on Zoom, I was wondering: is is AI capable now of impersonating a true human or a true human entity sufficiently so that if I were to look up something that has to do with the twenty twenty four U.S. election or the upcoming twenty twenty five Canadian election, it could fool me. I'm pretty good at this stuff, but it, it's good enough to fool me. I don't know. But it's plausible that people are working on this right now, and it could be ready, you know, by the next election. So I think we should be careful. Yeah. Are you seriously concerned that artificial general intelligence, AGI, we're not there yet, I understand, but it may acquire the ability to destroy humanity if we don't somehow make that at least unlikely, hopefully impossible? Yes. Um, Really, there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, but the horizon at which experts see superhuman intelligence coming you know, went from decades to centuries, just a few years ago to now maybe a few years to a couple of decades. Wow. And a few years is too quick. Like We don't have the countermeasures, the, uh, the infrastructure, the uh, regulation that would help us minimize those risks if it comes as quickly as that. Yeah. It's, it's really eerie to consider that artificial intelligence could su- so supersede our own and place us in second place as far as uh, intelligence is concerned. It would essentially have the tools at its disposal to do anything that it wants. And particularly if a, if a state were wanting to use it for questionable purposes like, you know, for example, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right. Um, you know, your brain is a biological machine, mm-hmm. and we've been making progress over the last decades understanding some of the principles of our intelligence, and this is what allowed us to you know, reach the point where we are now with, with deep learning. We have now machines that essentially capture our sense of intuition. Um, they're still weak on our ability to like, mentally deliberate, to reason, and so on. But there are a lot of people working on this. Um, and one way to think about this is we are on a trajectory to build machines 
that will be smarter than us. And if these machines end up having a self-preservation goal, it will be like creating a new species that will be smarter than us. And, you know, if you look back at how we have treated other species that were not as smart as us, it is not reassuring. No, so AI could say, what do we need humans for? Well, that's, that's a possibility. And, and I want to go back to something you said. We as a society now, we're not prepared. We can't move quickly enough. If it's a question of a few years before AGI arrives, we're not prepared, we're, we're not ready to move quickly enough to put up the, uh, the obstacles or the barriers to it becoming its own um, right. source of activity. Uh, but, but, I mean, that, that's, that's a lower uh, estimate. It could be, you know, taking more time. Um, but because it could be coming so quickly, I think we need to uh, move on, uh, you know, how do we face this? And there are lots of questions we don't even know the answers, like how, how do we deal with this? Um, what sorts of constraints we put to minimize the risks, both uh, within our countries and also, as you mentioned, in terms of uh, reducing the risks from uh, bad actors, countries that, that would develop these things and military with military objectives, there, there are a lot of questions to be considered, um, and we need to start like, working on them as soon as possible. So so we don't really have an international framework for doing that, then, that most nations yeah, have mean, agreed to. The beginnings of it was the, the last G7, when um, the, the heads of state decided to create a committee to start looking into how to regulate AI, but it's just very, very early days. Europe has uh, a, a, a proposal for a new regulation. Uh, Canada also has one, but none of these are yet uh, effective. Can I just ask you this? I, I don't know if it's a fair question, but I'd ask you and uh, maybe your colleagues who are at the forefront of the development of AI, how did this thing get away from you? Um, well, it, we still are in control. We still have agency, and we should you know, take advantage of the time we have now. But yeah, we should have been more careful before. I think that many of us thought it was so far into the future that we shouldn't worry. But, but what happened with um, these large language models like ChatGPT is that uh, without even like a really very novel new science, just more engineering, we've uh, rapidly uh, risen to the level of intelligence of a machine that can manipulate language very well. And that was the bar set by Turing um, in, in, you know, at the beginning of computer science after the Second World War for a test of intelligence. Okay. You've suggested a scenario, I find this really interesting and very deeply concerning, Suggest a scenario you suggested uh, where humans ask AI to fix climate change, and then it decides humans are the problem. Could you f- finish that for us? Sure. I mean, this is a sort of a cartoon scenario. Uh, I'm worried about more sophisticated ones where, uh, for example, uh, humans might uh, want to design an AI at their image with a sense of self and ego and, and uh, self, self-preservation. And once an entity has that kind of sense of self-preservation, they want to, for example, avoid that somebody would turn them off. Nobody wants to die, right? Right. 
And once they want that, well, they'll they be basically in opposition to us, just like in the movie uh, 2001 Space Odyssey with Hal. Now, uh, the details of what can happen, there are many possibilities. One, one, two areas I'm worried about are um, uh, cybersecurity and, and bioweapons. But maybe there are other things that, that I'm not thinking about right now. So what I was thinking about, I think you said that um, AI might decide that we're the problem with climate change, humans are, and so it invents a virus to take us out. Right. And what's, uh, what's scary as well is that right now, in terms of biotechnology, it's fairly easy to order new organisms that have a given DNA. You, you just you know, go on the web and, and make an order. You provide the, the, the sequence that defines that, that new organism. And it's very hard for those companies to know what that DNA sequence is going to do. Mm-hmm. But, but an AI that's smarter than us and understands the, the, the biology and, and you know, could potentially design something that we don't understand the consequences of. What good is AI doing now? Oh, uh, AI is already doing a lot of good. Um, there's a good reason why there's so much that's invested in it. I mean, uh, first, uh, all the big tech uh, companies are relying on, on AI for a lot of the things they're doing. There's more and more deployment of AI in, in the medical area, healthcare. Uh, AIs are currently being used in, um, in, in cars that, you know, not to drive completely by themselves, but to prevent accidents, for example. Uh, or to to drive on the highway and things like that. So we're just seeing the beginnings of AI. You have to look at how things have changed in the last few years and and then project where they might go in in coming years. Mm -hmm. I don't question your your motives for your work, your early work. I'm sure it was all for the betterment of of humanity. And uh, it's just very concerning to the rest of us when a brilliant scientist such as yourself and your colleagues express the level of concern that you have for where AI may go and its potential for harming the human race. Might AI itself develop something very frightening we can't even conceive of? Well, that, that's part of the concern. If, if there are machines that are smarter than us, they could think of strategies that we don't even conceive right now. Just like you know, gorillas don't necessarily understand how we are hurting their environment and uh, uh, driving them extinct. Right. This is one reason why we should avoid getting uh, in a situation where it's very easy for anybody or hacker to uh, build something like this or to change its instructions so that it it becomes malevolent. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a nation state that's doing it. It could be somebody who's just extraordinarily skilled or capable or talented at this kind of technological uh, activity and develop their own. Yeah, that's a concern, especially if the, um, the, the, the the parameters of these systems are shared online, which is currently what is happening with some of these large models. Then it becomes, you don't even need to have uh, super expensive infrastructure to um, like tune these systems toward new goals or to give them new instructions. This is really scary stuff. It is, but we also shouldn't let fear drive our decisions. We need to like understand uh, what can happen, what are possible uh, mitigations that we could do, yeah. and what are the pros and cons of different actions. 
um, yeah, panic is not going to help you. No, but I don't want to be trained to pick up the new, go get the newspaper either. Yeah, um, I mean, there is also a potential for uh, incredible good coming out of AI. Yes. Um, yeah, and so how do we put these two things in the balance? This is this is not easy. This is the task that's ahead of us, and we don't have much time. We may not have much. We time. may not have. So I came across. Uh, I'm sure many of you did. Came across. Um, an op-ed by Frank Stronach, the founder of Magna International, uh, as we've been saying, one of Canada's largest global companies and inducted into the Automotive Hall of Fame, Magna International. The, uh, the op-ed by Mr. Stronach is titled The National Debt, a ticking time bomb for future generations. So it's the, the, the young ones, the kids of today and uh, those not yet born who will be extremely vulnerable if the governments of today don't take appropriate action. By the way, you may remember that Canada has the highest level of household debt in the G7 right now, which makes our economy quite vulnerable to what's happening, a global economic challenge, crisis. And that's according to uh, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. Mr. Stronach, thank you very much for joining us. I'm a big admirer of yours. Oh, great. Always enjoy your show. Great to be with you. Thank you. So you write, Canada keeps digging itself deeper and deeper into debt thanks to out-of-control government spending and the increased interest rate we have to pay on the ballooning debt. It's an addiction, it appears. Well, there's a lot of problems. But let me, uh, first of all, I started in a garage and built up a company with 170,000 employees. I've been on the boards of universities, hospitals, banks. New York Stock Exchange Corporate Governance. So I accumulated a lot of experience and also was a member of parliament, right? I was for a short period of time. In but, but let me, uh, really, what it boils down to is, and we all agree on it, all the politicians agree, if the economy doesn't work, nothing else will work. You cannot feed the hungry, you cannot look after the most fragile people, the elderly, the sick, the handicapped, so we don't talk about it. What drives the economy? The economy is driven by three forces. Smart managers, hardworking employees, and investors. The message I want to get across is uh, workers have a moral right to some of the profits to help to generate. So that is absolutely necessary. And our debt, look, uh, we are not productive anymore. Let me give you an example. Many years ago, I think in the, in the early 80s, I put in a corporate constitution at Magna. The constitution, we what, how we, how we divide up the profits. You know, twenty uh, percent of the profits went to the shareholders, then ten percent to the workers. Uh, 6% to management, 7% to research, 2% to charity, the rest was invested. When I put the charter in, the first year our profits were up about 40%. The second year they were up about 100%. The third year they were up 200%. What I'm trying to do to, to, to tell people is, if workers got to participate, they have a right, huh? They have a right to to uh, to, uh, to accumulate, uh, to participate in capital building. We're shutting them out. 
more and more money is, is helped by fewer and fewer. So, uh, you know, we, we could pay back the debt fairly quickly if we workers would be involved. And you underscore just how important that is, because you're right. According to the International Monetary Fund, the ratio between Canada's public debt and its gross domestic product is 105%. In plain English, this means that as a country, we now owe more money than the total value of all the goods and services we produce in a year. If Canada were a person or a business, the bank would already have called in the loan. So if we compare that to the charter that you put into Magna 40 years ago, no comparison. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, Magna is actually more than a business, it's a culture. We call it the fair enterprise, the fair enterprise uh, economy. The basic philosophy on fair enterprise is the human charter of rights alone is not sufficient. We have to fortify it with an economic charter of rights. Economic charters of rights will lead to economic democracies, and economic democracies are the basis for democracy itself. Every time we have rights, there should also be responsibilities. We gotta have, we, we could pay back the debt very quickly, but uh, the rights would be, uh, politicians should have the right to accumulate debt. They must have balanced budgets. What formula would you, uh, and you talk about it in the op-ed, but what formula would you say to governments the federal government, particularly, well, it's the federal government because they're, they're the ones who manage the, the national debt, supposedly. Uh, what's the formula they must engage in to bring it down and bring the system, the whole situation, into a manageable reality? Well, we should make a commitment. Uh, uh, look, first of all, it doesn't, it, you can't solve a problem if you point fingers whose fault it is. And you can never go in with a chainsaw and, and think that doesn't work. So basically, uh, Canada should make a commitment that we want to pay back our debt 5% per year. So doing that in 20 years, Canada would be debt-free. And naturally, we gotta, we gotta, we have too much bureaucracy, too much, uh, too much overhead, right? Uh, so uh, when the first computers came on the market about 50 years ago, the slogan was, when you got one of those computers, you can eliminate a total office for. When I, when I look at the cities, doesn't matter what's in Montreal, Ottawa, Vancouver, uh, Hamilton, Toronto, look, there's 20 times more office buildings now than 50 years ago. We have, we gotta reduce the overhead. So we gotta, when I walk in the factory, I can, I can tell, I look if that factories make money or not. If there's too many, too many office jobs, uh, it doesn't matter how, how the, the, the workers on the factory floor work. It just, they just wouldn't make, so everything's gonna be in balance. So what we really need is an economic charter of rights and balance, huh? or responsibilities. And we have no time. We, we don't have any time to waste. Well, it, it is, we, of course, the time's running out, we think, yeah, but that'd be very sad, but, there is, uh, uh, you know, uh, what I enjoy most now, I get from the lecture series in the universities, uh, uh, the theme is what would be the structure which leads to an ideal society. We have to collect it to do that. And it dawned on me the last few years. That be because I used to give a lot of lectures from Harvard right across America, right across Canada, right across Europe. 
So we, if we, if we can't, if we can't come up with the ideal structure, the ideal society, we got a problem. Mr. Stronach, before we talk about the federal debt and where it is and how much it is accumulating daily and monthly and what we're paying to service the debt annually, one of the pillars of success, economic success that you mentioned when we started talking was investment. Looking at the realities of this country now, and there's such little enthusiasm to maximize one of our greatest strengths, and that's natural resources. The world still needs oil and natural gas. How difficult is it to attract really meaningful and uh, direction-changing investment? Well, it would start with, uh, I divide uh, large companies over 300 employees and small companies below 300 employees. Large companies, the law would say 20% of the profits of the company has got to go to them to workers. Now, small company, you take all the you take all the ra- all the chains off, right? There's only two rules they have to uh, apply uh, or, or or live with. One is workplace safety. You never want to have a work where somebody could lose some fingers or an arm or whatever. Right? It's workplace safety and the environment. You cannot dump uh, poison chemicals in your backyard. Otherwise, there'd be no gift. We need entrepreneurs. We got to show. You know, uh, we got to show what, what people can do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pure free enterprise. We need free enterprise. Yes. But it's very, it's very disruptive. It's very greed. Uh, look, we are born with a bit of a, with of a greed instinct. Uh, without greed, the uh, almost up and could not survive. But if greed, if it's large thing, it's, it's very destructive. Can we attract foreign investment to Canada, in, in the, given the state well, the country's in now? Here. We can do things, right? Mm-hmm. When you look back to 19... Well, we can do it ourselves. 1980, 1990, Christ, uh, you know, at that time I built about two, three factories a month. Now I wanted to open up a farmer's market. It takes me a few years. I still have no... The bureaucrats tell me how many potatoes you can sell yeah. or how large the store could be. Yeah. So we have we gone way beyond, way beyond. So when when you came when you came to Canada, and you started Magna, how different an environment was it for an entrepreneur than it is today? Oh, huge! I mean, uh, look, I um, you know I I, I put five thousand dollars saved up. Uh, I rented a place on Dufferin on Dupont. Uh, and uh, I bought a few used mach- machinery on a down payment. Nobody, nobody, there was no, uh, all they went and they worked in the factory. And I said, I'm very good in problem solving. If I can't solve it, you don't, you don't have to pay me. So I grew and grew, you know, the first, after one month I hired somebody, after a year about 10 people, two years, 20, five years, about 5,000, wow. 10 years, about 20,000. 30 years, 100,000, etc. You haven't done 170,000. A life well lived, and you've helped so many in this country. Well, it's uh, look, uh, I have uh, um, I have factories in 34 different countries in the world. That's amazing. I could live in dignity in all of them. Yeah. I want to live here in Canada. It's, the, it's a great country. It's the last country left which could be a role model for the world. Yeah. We've got to need economic charters of rights. So, so let's workers, look. Sorry, workers. Workers have the right to participate. We got to be capitalists out of the workers. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, you know, sometimes if you, if you appreciate, people will respond positively if there's a sense of appreciation for what they do. But if it's just expectation of more and more and more, and no sense of uh, thank you for what you're doing. It's, it's, it's very simple. Workers on the front line, they know how to make things better. When they know, they get a cut, whatever they do. That what drives the system. Yeah. Why we should have made lunch one of those days because you get a great way to simplify and get a certain message across that people understand. You know, and anytime, just any time it would be interesting <laughs> to have lunch with you. Just in the last few minutes, you've given us the formula for beginning a business, growing it, growing it successfully, and maintaining loyalty and enthusiasm and support you for the workforce. You've got to share with the workers. Yeah, it's amazing. It's simple. Let me ask you this. If they, if they are in tangible terms, no, they get a cut of the profits. This is when they hustle. They look in the financial yep. paper, et cetera, et cetera. Business is easy. All you have to do is make a better product for a better price. But you can only do it if the heart of the workers is in. You as a manager got to prove every day that they respect you. If you be able to do that, you know, uh, Luck of the 170, I had not one ever that this grundled man employee. That's amazing. Because the, you know, the, the, the principles are so strong, right? We, we audit the human capital besides the financial capital. We have a special process. By the way, whatever I do is open to the public, right? Because, uh, you know, uh, yes, I, I've always said it doesn't matter how smart you are. If the stars are not aligned, it won't work. Life's been good to me. This country's been great to me. And I want to do my part. The, uh, Canada could be the greatest country. It's the last country. So let me ask you this. You write about the federal debt being at $1.225 trillion, growing at a rate of approximately $145 million per day, or about $4 billion per month. And you write the Fraser Institute, according to the Fraser Institute, the federal and provincial governments will spend a combined $69 billion on debt payments this year, up nearly $19 billion from two years ago. So governments say, well, a lot of that has to do with the pandemic. But you make the point, and this is, the, I think, the fundamental point of your, your op-ed, is this, this national debt is not dealt with, and you've provided the formula on how to take care of it in 20 years, it's the, the little kids of today who are going to be paying it for their whole lives. Well, you mean you're bankrupt. They would have, they would have a miserable life. I've never uh, seen the other bank which, who would forgive your debt. Yeah. How, how confident are you that there exists the will and the determination in government in this country to run the, the government and the government debt as a business would, as you would? I, I'm, I'm still, um, you see, people had it, and it's, it's great when people, when, when, when life is good at them, et cetera, et cetera. We all strive to that. But, you know, when you look back in history, you always have society, you know, which achieved a certain high, and then they get kind of lazy, neglectful, and <clears throat> things start falling apart. We got to realize if you if uh, <clears throat> you, you, you got to stay on top of it, you got to work. I, I came across a very interesting op-ed uh, written by Professor Ross McKittrick, professor of economics and uh, CBE fellow in sustainable commerce at the University of Guelph, 
where he specializes in energy and climate. And uh, the op-ed begins, Until the recent Canadian wildfires sent plumes of smoke over the densely populated cities around the Great Lakes and along the eastern seaboard, few people in those cities had ever experienced the weird orange haze of a forest fire or the temporary spike in fine particulates and pervasive smell of smoke. Understandably, many people reacted with alarm. We city dwellers typically only see wildfires on television, usually alongside footage of fire crews and water bombers valiantly trying to put them out, which creates the impression they are somehow unnatural events that must be avoided at all costs. In reality, writes Professor McKittrick, forest fires are not only natural, but essential to the life cycle of the forest ecosystem. Ross, thank you very much uh, for coming on the program. Uh, You carry on to say, though, in your piece, unfortunately, politicians, reporters, and climate activists rushed in to exploit this unusual event by pushing their agenda. Could you sort of expand on that thought? Yeah. Hi, Roy. Um, Well, it's it's unusual to have the smoke plume go down over the, the cities, as I mentioned, but it's not unusual to have forest fires. We have pretty good data in Canada back uh, at least to the 1960s and then um, patchy data before that. Um, the picture that people should have in mind is that um, starting in the 1700s up to the 20th century, there was a lot more uh, fire activity in the, the, the forests in their natural state. We have aggressively suppressed forest fires in the 20th century, and so the number and the area extent of forest fires went down in the 20th century. started going up again um, around 1960, and there's a host of competing explanations for that, but the number of forest fires went up until about 1990, and then it's been going down for the past 30 years or so. The area burns also went up until the mid-1990s, and it kind of leveled out. There's some really bad years in the late 80s. It's kind of leveled out since then. So um, looking at Canada as a whole, uh, it's very unclear what the long-term trends are. And there are no simple explanations from one year to the next about why we have a bad year this year, 2020, we had the lowest area burned in the historical record. So anyone who has a simple explanation of what's going on needs to realize the data is going to throw curveballs at you, and and there are just no simple stories here. Well, Prime Minister Trudeau, as you point out in your piece, uh, had a simple explanation, which he tweeted out. We're seeing more and more of these fires because of climate change. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's very convenient for a man who's trying to sell uh, carbon tax and very expensive climate policies, not that they would do anything about the forest fire situation anyway. Um, but as I've, I mentioned in that op-ed and in various interactions I've had on, on Twitter, um, it's not a simple climate change story. And uh, the expert groups like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and Environment and Climate Change Canada, they don't claim that it is. Um, if it was climate change, for instance, we'd be seeing more area burned globally. But the area burned globally, which is monitored by satellite, has been going down for at least 15 years. And here in Canada, uh, Environment and Climate Change Canada put out a report back in 2019 on the changing state of Canada's climate. And they talked about fire weather index, which is a, a measure of the propensity for fires to burn. And they said there are some regions where it's been going up, other regions where it's going down. And amidst this decadal variability, 
the, this, these big ups and downs, it's very hard to spot trends. And even out west, the, the dryness issue, the, the drought portion of that index has been going down. So um, all of these things just keep coming back to, if, if you hear somebody saying, I can explain the whole thing, it's all climate change, it's all your fault, it's all climate change, uh, that's self-serving on their part, and it's not an accurate picture for people. And, and you know, I've heard that uh, I've heard that a great deal, and uh, you know, in personal conversations, and certainly professionally. And I also find it interesting in your piece you write in an extensive discussion on the Royal Society blog back in 2020. U.S. UK forestry expert Stefan Dorr, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, mm-hmm. and Christina Santon acknowledged that climate change may be making conditions for fire more favorable in some areas but also noted it's leading to reduction in other areas. So we, we just, do we just not know or are, have we just not managed the, you know, the, the, the land and the forests the way we should and allowed it to, uh, to create its own fire breaks? Or are we just, who's, I mean, if we're, if we're going to have to find a place to point the finger of blame, do we know where to point it? Um, well, again, I don't want people to have the impression that we face some kind of a crisis this year that's um, entirely out of line with the situation we've been managing for 150 years. Um, some years are worse than others. Now, the question, really, the policy question is, how do you manage the forest fire risk in the vicinity of places that people live? Right. And that's where we can legitimately say there were changes in forest fire management practices back in the 1990s, um, Certainly in the United States, in response to uh, demands from environmentalists for better habitat protection for the snowy owl, the Clinton administration uh, heavily restricted um, things like controlled burns, forest thinning, um, the, the techniques that had been used to reduce the destructive potential of forest fires. And it was predicted at the time, and this is back in the 1990s, it was predicted, okay, you, you can do this, but it, you're going to have a higher risk of catastrophic forest fires. They will continue to break out. When they break out, they'll get out of control more quickly. And that was a point made by uh, the experts that you cited, that changing forest management regimes, which were motivated by the notion of this is going to be good for habitat protection, did create the risk that when forest fires get started, they're more likely to get large quickly out of control. Mm-hmm. On the Canadian side, I've had lots of interactions with people who work in the forestry sector since that op-ed came out. Some of them agree with it. Others say, well, it's anecdotal. We don't have very good data on it. Um, the issue of is there more fuel load uh, is, uh, again, it's it's a complicated question and the data is pretty limited. It's, it really comes down to some anecdotal uh evidence and some local records that uh, I think make a persuasive case that that's at least part of what's happened. Let's get to this, um, this issue of the Titan. And I was particularly interested in, uh, in an op-ed that I read in theconversation.com. And the headline was, Titanic Submersible Catastrophic Implosion. Questions remain about the costs and the ethics of rescuing tourist expeditions. It's a question that is going to be uncomfortable for many, I would think, but it's one that really needs to be asked. And it was posed by Professor Ali Asghari. He's a professor of disaster and emergency management at York University in Toronto. 
Professor Asgari, thank you for coming on. How are you, sir? Thank you very much for having me. I'm very good. Thank you very much. How about you? I'm doing well. Appreciate you asking. So we have, uh, we have this massive international search and rescue operation for five people aboard the Titan, and it does raise questions, as you point out, about risk management, search and rescue operation costs, and the ethical aspect of responses. I want to speak with you about specifics, but in a general sense first, what are you suggesting with that statement? Uh, that's a very good uh, question. Thank you for asking. Um, the, the, the key point of this uh, conversation or, or article is basically we should not create a risk, whether by private sector, by individual, by uh, government, that we are not ready or capable to handle it. In this case, uh, it was definitely the case from individual perspective, from company perspective, and to some extent from the government perspective or those who are supposed to respond. However, I want to highlight the fact that my point is not about this incident uh, or search and rescue in this particular case per se, meaning that uh, once there is a call for help, uh, on the sea, there is a need, there, there has to be response to it anyways, to save life. That is the high priority. My conversation is more about risk management prior to taking operations like this before we actually, uh, go into this, uh, activities. That mm -hmm. was the key point. Okay. And people who engage in these risky, uh, ventures on the sea and on land, should be aware what the potential is for search and rescue before they begin, no? Absolutely, absolutely. And that is that is the, the uh, something that unfortunately not many people either are aware of, what are the potentials, or uh, those who are responsible for it, uh, especially those who operate uh, or provide these kind of services, may want to ignore it unfortunately uh in this particular case this seems to be there has been a lot of failures in the whole process of uh, providing the service and in terms of risk assessment uh, many uh, many warnings ignored uh, many or assessment basically was not done to properly uh, based on limited very limited information and in particular uh, as as you said there was no mention or attention to the larger consequences of any failure in the deep sea uh, ocean uh, exploration, which is really a difficult, uh, even with existing technologies, it is not an easy task for search and rescue operations, uh, never mind about, you know, individual and, you know, a vessel to tackle and handle that. Yeah. Professor Asgari, you also point out that shipping, fishing, and offshore oil and gas drilling are conducted in a marine environment regularly, and there's a large number of incidents happen annually with an average annual fatality rate of 15.6, and that's between 2011 and 2020. And uh, it suggests, as you say, that marine operations are relatively safe and emergency responses are effective. But in this case... It was a panic move where everyone came together or tried to come together. And I wonder how much media attention and public interest fueled this massive and hugely expensive search. 
that is that is uh, the case, uh, and this is not uh, unusual because, in in my perspective, because you know this type of event is not happening very regularly. This was unique in, in many ways. So I think from media perspective, although I'm not talking as an expert in media, but someone uh, looking at how media covered disaster and emergency situation, I see this is sort of rare event. Uh, how, how many of these happens around the globe in a, in a regular basis? Really not much. Although Search and rescue operations, incidents at the sea uh, happens, as we uh, indicated in Canada, outside Canada internationally. They are of those normal kind of uh, uh, search and rescue operations involving, for example, a, a, a collapse of a ship or drowning of a ship or smaller ship, larger ships, mm -hmm. uh, fire on, on board, etc. These are, or even maybe some human-based uh, uh, activities that require search and rescue operation. But th this, this one was unique in many ways, particularly the fact that this was very, very special case that definitely uh, impacted the, the or media attention, impacted the, the uh, search and rescue operation and attention to that. But also uh, because uh, in a sense, when we did not have information about what has actually happened, it, to be able to effectively do a search and rescue operation, the area of uh, search is going to be huge, uh, both vertically and horizontally. And also the equipment that you need is going to be vast. Uh, also, not every equipment can, can support this kind of operation. So uh, you see a lot of convergence in, in this uh, simply because each of those could provide maybe one form of assistance in this particular case. Not that they were repeating necessarily all kind of, you know, the same thing. Okay, I have to take a break in about 30 seconds, then we'll come back. But I want to ask you this, and you just touched on it. So this search and rescue effort required high tech, and I'm not being heartless. I know the five lives that were at stake, we all identified with these people on board, the Titans. But the operation required high tech equipment, tools, training, coordination, and a capacity to succeed in a massive area of the North Atlantic. Do you think there was ever really a chance of a successful search and rescue operation had Titan not imploded? Um, still difficult to say, but definitely this was not something that we did have all the equipments uh, and enough number of equipment and personnel to uh, to handle that, just considering all the scenarios that at the time uh, were proposed to the possible situation in terms of where the vessel is whether it is on the seafloor, whether it's in the middle or whether it's on the, on the surface. Uh, if it is on the surface, uh, you, you need certain equipments to be able to uh, track the surface. Uh, and these are all from uh, space and also from the sea. Uh, if there are, uh, these are on the, uh, on the floor, then not every, you know, Coast Guard has equipment to go to the surface of the uh, ocean and search. Of and course. so even with the, with the lighting, with all the elements, and complexity that is there is is really difficult to 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 have enough equipment. So I would I wouldn't say this would be an easy easy 
um, uh, search and rescue or maybe short time search and rescue anyways, uh, even if we had not really uh, faced with catastrophic uh, implosion. Professor Asgari, um, you wrote in part, this search operation was among the costliest in recent history, and we don't know who will pay the bulk of expenses, insurance, Ocean Gate, that's the company that owned Titan, or the public. So that leads to the question about balancing acceptable risks with available emergency response capacities. Um, are, are you saying that if, if the private and risky behaviors exceed available emergency response, and we touched on this a little earlier, but I'd like to go back to it, uh, including search and rescue, it's the risk takers who must accept that the cost of a rescue operation and its likelihood of success will decide whether an operation is undertaken, or is that too harsh? Well, uh, this is uh, this is something that we uh, need to have in place in order to make sure that uh, this uh, the all aspects of risk is included in the risk management process uh, before any incident happens. Uh, that that ensures that we have the capability to respond. Otherwise, uh, if we all entertain in activities or risky activities that uh, either we we don't know if there is a possibility for search uh, and rescue and support in case of an accident happens uh, or not, then we are putting ourselves in, in danger. And that is why society has created all kind of emergency response uh, system, because we know that there are certain activities certain risk that even if we prepare ourselves, uh, try to mitigate them as much as possible, still there may be some incidents. But we, knowing that, we are creating uh, this response mechanism that can uh, sufficiently provide that rescue and um, service that is needed. However, in these cases, and um, specify, I mean, specifically mentioned these cases, we are in a situation where risk assessment has not been done properly to include these uh, aspects of, uh, you know, emergency response in case something like this happened. I would say and argue that had this been taken care of in the earliest stage of risk assessment, or take into account, we would uh, transfer the risk to the owner of the risk, in this case, the company mm -hmm. or individuals who are taking these risky actions, instead of transferring this risk without any any initial payment for it by the by the individuals or or the company for search and rescue operations, anyways. Because yeah. if uh, I give you an example um, of what we do, for example, in a typical city. If we, we all pay, for example, for fire and search and rescue uh, that is happening in the city. Right. And because of that, we also are careful uh, about the fire in our property because it's going to cost all of us. So mm -hmm. this element, search and rescue and also support is already incorporated in this uh, system. But in, in this particular case, it wasn't the case, unfortunately. Okay, let me just, I just have two minutes. I want to raise this point with you. Clearly, sure. Oceangate, the company that owned Titan, should have been aware, and how could they not have, that a critical emergency situation would exceed likely all capacity to rescue the crew or the passengers of Titan. In fact, marine experts raised very real concerns about the safety of Titan operating at such depths 
as far as back as 2018. So that should have factored into the discussion from the very beginning. This, that's essentially what you're saying, isn't it? Absolutely. And the point or the problem here is actually several issues. One is that I think there was sort of uh, underestimation of the risk by the by the company uh, and, and the individuals behind the company, uh, despite the warnings. Because once you have this tendency of ignoring the risk and uh, underestimating the risk, uh, maybe because of the passion that you have about this uh, this activity, or basically based on um, you know uh, some some estimations that are not robust enough. That, that is one element. And of course, uh, the cost, I believe the cost of doing this kind of uh, or taking risk mitigation measure was in this case so much that uh, you basically have to stop. And that is what I think experts was, were okay. suggesting that, you know, this is not safe. So uh, if you want to make it safe, basically you have to stop it yeah. because with the current technology, with what you are investing and spending is not going to happen. It's not, there's no going to be a safe operation All right. uh, to take Professor, people uh, on board. Asghari, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's a very interesting discussion and it's a discussion that we all have to have. Thank you. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Time. Thank you very much, Ray. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms. <laughs>